When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There is a really interesting relationship between goals and our social relations. We are attracted to people who support our motivation and they are attracted to us because we support uh, their motivation. And so our, our friends are people that help us with our goals. And when we are no longer instrumental for each other's motivation, our relationships drift apart, like people drift apart. We, we no longer uh, spend time together. That was Ayelet Fishbach on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of ACT Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, and author of the upcoming book, Work, Parent, Thrive. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of ACT Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk dot com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. It's Patricia Karpis, host of Untangle, the award-winning podcast that covers topics like optimizing brain health, finding your purpose, how to sleep better, harnessing the power of anxiety, successfully changing habits, finding more happiness and joy, and overall, all the many ways to live your best life. If you enjoy hearing from thought leaders, neuroscientists, psychologists, nutritionists, business leaders, and more. Join us wherever you listen to podcasts. Psychologists Off the Clock is proud to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education. Praxis is the premier provider of evidence-based training for mental health professionals. Praxis offers both live and on-demand courses with options for beginner as well as more advanced clinicians. Praxis is also known for its top acceptance and commitment therapy trainers. So if you're a clinician and you want to level up your ACT skills, Praxis is the place. 
And if you're like us at Psychologists Off the Clock and you want to transform your clients' lives by learning how to effectively promote lasting change with evidence-based training, check out Praxis Continuing Education. You can get a coupon code on the offers page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com slash sponsors. I'm here with Debbie to introduce today's episode with Ayelet Fishbach, where we talk about the science of motivation. And what I really appreciated about this episode, you'll hear right in the beginning that Ayelet starts by giving us an overview of a number of different factors that matter when it comes to motivation. And then we spend a lot of time in the episode really unpacking in a concrete way, how do we identify the right goals? And what is it that we need to keep in mind as we move toward those goals? How do we maintain motivation? How do we make achieving those goals more likely? And I found that I really learned a lot from this episode, and you'll even hear me kind of in real time clarifying like, oh, so what I think you're saying is this, you know, you'll you'll sort of hear how I go through this process of renewed understanding as we we talk about these, these different concepts. So Debbie, I'm wondering, what was your reaction to this episode? Well, I really liked your examples that you gave throughout, Jill, where you were talking about some of your own goals and things you've been through in your own life related to this, because all of the ones you talked about, I I kind of could see my own history in there too. So it was very relatable to me. And this was one of those episodes, I love when this happens on the podcast, where I immediately take something from the conversation and it has some sort of application in my life or in my clinical work. And I listened to about half the episode driving to my office and saw a client that day who came in with a goal that this person is working on. And I immediately clicked in some of the ideas from the episode and was able to include that in the conversation. So things like, why are you doing this? What is this goal about really, and then also just some strategies for how to to help the person be motivated and more effective in working toward the goal. And I think one of the things that just gave me some food for thought is how there are so many different goals we could all have out there in the world. You know, you read a self-help book, you listen to a podcast, you see something on social media, and it's like, oh, that'd be a good goal. You know, there's just it's almost like limitless behavior change or self-improvement kind of goals we all could do, but we can't do them all, nor do we want to. And I think just thinking about like, why am I doing this? What's important about this to me and what's effective can actually just help us do the things that matter most to us. And I think that in this episode, there's some really great strategies that will help people think about that in their own lives. I agree. And I, and I love that, that you're already using the concepts in, in therapy. And, and I've noticed that in my own personal experience, that it's changed the way that I'm thinking about my own goals. And, you know, everybody of course knows that we're all act practitioners and part of act is kind of holding outcomes lightly and focusing more on process and choice. And what this conversation with Ayelet did for me was to help me understand like that this isn't an either or kind of thing, that it's much more nuanced than that. And there's a place where it's more helpful to think about outcome. And there's a place where it's more helpful to think about process. And so I think that our listeners will really get a lot out of this conversation because we talk about some of the the, the complexities of goals, but in a really like kind of simplified and accessible way. 
Yeah, I think, you know, flexibility, and that's a word that came up in your, your interview. It's like, you have to be flexible in this. And there has to be some trial and error to, to figure out what works for you for this particular goal, what works for you in your life. Because there is no one size fits all model to these kinds of things. You have to do what works for you. Yeah. And that's something that struck me both in this episode and our episode with Katie Milkman on behavior change is, you know, research tells us a lot about what is most likely to be effective, but of course there are individual and contextual differences. And it's what we do in therapy too, right? We give our clients so many different skills and we say, go try all these, but then you don't have to practice all of them for the rest of your life. Figure out what really works for you. And I think that that was, that was one of the take-home messages here too. And I know for me, I'm looking forward to trying out some of these things and, and st- seeing what sticks. So enjoy this episode with Ayelet Fishbach. Hey, everybody, it's Jill here, and I am thrilled to have Dr. Ayelet Fishback with me here today to talk about her book, Get It Done, Surprising Lessons from the Science of Motivation. Ayelet Fishbach is the Jeffrey Breckenridge Keller Professor of Behavioral Science and Marketing at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business and the past president of the Society for the Study of Motivation. Dr. Fishbach has been published in many psychology and business journals, including Psychological Review and Psychological Science, and served as an associate editor of several journals, including the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology and Psychological Science. Her research is regularly featured in the media, including the Wall Street Journal, CNN, Chicago Tribune, NPR, and was selected to be featured in the New York Times Annual Year in Ideas. Dr. Fishbach has received several international awards, including the Society of Experimental Social Psychology's Best Dissertation Award and Career Trajectory Award, and the Fulbright Educational Foundation Award. In 2006, she received the Provost's Teaching Award from the University of Chicago. Ayala, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being on Psychologists Off the Clock. Thank you so much for having me, Jill. I'm excited to be here. Good. Well, as I was saying to you before we hit record, I have way too many questions. There's no way we'll get through them all. But, you know, it just goes to show there is so much cool, interesting information packed into this book. And one of the things I love about the title, so I had said in the intro, get it done, surprising lessons from the science of motivation. A lot of these lessons were surprising to me, things that maybe kind of go counter to some of the things that we kind of hear out in, you know, pop culture out in the world. So so some of my questions will be in line with that. But let's go ahead and start first just by talking about goals. So you start the book by talking about how choosing the right goal is important and that there are three really common traps that we need to be wary of avoiding. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of good goal setting And then let's unpack these traps a bit and talk about, you know, what our listeners might need to avoid when they're setting their own personal or professional goals. Uh, Yes. And, you know, when you set a goal, well, first, even before you get to how to set a goal correctly, you need to understand that your goal can be very powerful. And so it better have the uh, the right content. It's better be your your right goal. And so I I actually started talking about how to set goals by giving an example for a highly motivating goal that was terrible for the people who chose it. And that was uh, the goal to get to the summit of Mount Everest on a bad weather day. Getting the, the summit of Mount Everest 
is a really good goal in terms of maximizing uh, your motivation. Uh, it is uh, very specific. It has a clear target. It is not a chore. It's not a means. It's the goal itself. It is intrinsically motivating. It has high incentives. It's a it, it, the dream goal in terms of uh, uh, motivating people to to meet it. But that also means that people are willing to pay with their life. And you know, and in that case, they are probably choosing the wrong goal. It also has you know, when you get to the summit of Mount Everest, unfortunately, it's going to be harder to come back down. So it has this feature where you are. Like you're so motivated to to make it, but then actually making it is you, know, you still need to come down, and the, you really need to take this into account. So, assuming that people set the goal that is healthy for them, that is uh, uh, right for them, then you want to uh, set a goal that is exciting, that is uh, not sure. That means that it's sufficiently abstract. Okay, that it's uh, uh, not something that you need to do in order to do the thing that you want to do. <laughs> and I often encourage people to ask many questions of why. Why do you want to do this? And when you answer that why, then ask why again and kind of get to the level that is sufficiently abstract to be uh, motivating. Your uh, goal should uh, uh, ideally be a do goal or an approach goal. Mm -hmm. Avoidance goals are, are harder to stick with. <laughs> right. Is, we uh, often refer yeah. to those as dead person's goals. If a dead person can do it, it's not a very good goal. I, I love that. I yeah. love that. Yeah, right. That's that's great. I'm thinking now about like the Dan Wagner study with asking people not to think about white bears. Definitely mm -hmm. dead people do mm -hmm. not think about white bears. They don't bears, think about so, white bears. Yeah. Right? So, such a, a good example. And, and like, you know, they don't eat junk food. They, uh, they don't spend time on social media. Yeah, I think. I just learned something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, uh, you ideally want your goal to be an approach uh, goal, something that you uh, want to achieve. I, I want to go back to what you were saying about the, the hikers on Mount Everest, because what that really made me think about, and I found myself really thinking about this throughout the book, is, is that you can kind of follow the science and set all the best goals and, and you know, you can do it right. Like you were saying, have it sufficiently abstract and have it be the outcome rather than the means. And it still might not be the right goal. And to me, what kept coming up for me is that it's really important to go into it with a sense of flexibility. And some of the science you, you talk about, you know, for example, you talk about the middle problem that people are motivated at the beginning of starting a goal and they're motivated as they get close to achieving the goal. But in the middle, the motivation sort of waxes and wanes a little bit or just wanes a little bit. Um, you talk about how both progress toward a goal and lack of progress toward a goal can motivate behavior. You know, there are all these just like really interesting findings around the science of motivation that to me, I, I just kept thinking like, well, if the motivation wanes, how do we not give up? You know, how can we still continue to progress toward that end point? Like during that middle problem, how do we progress toward that end point? What if we're going gangbusters to the top of Mount Everest and then we find out, you know, that weather's rolling in and it might not be the best idea that, you know, doing it right based on science while also sort of holding some of these ideas lightly and 
and approaching it in a flexible way may, may be optimal, if that makes sense. Y- yes. I think that you are referring to the fact that when we motivate ourselves, we are we are the person that is planning, okay? we're a planner, and we are the, also the person that's doing, that is the, the doer. And uh, the planner and the doer need to kind of listen to, to each other. Uh, most of us will not make it to uh, uh, the summit of uh, Mount Everest. <laughs> no, uh, certainly not. <laughs> right, but, but most of us, well, many of us will have some sort of sport injuries, okay? And and this happen when we uh, push ourselves too hard in uh, uh, the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Many people go on extreme diets, okay? And these are motivating uh, goals that are uh, not good for them. And you kind of need uh, the doer at this point, tell the planner, you know what, this plan is not good, okay? I mm-hmm. feel uh, that this is not good for my body, that I'm going to have an injury, that I uh, don't have the, the strength that, that, that I had when I was on my previous uh, uh, diet to stay with this. Uh, example and so, yeah, you you really need this flexibility now a lot of designing your motivation is is understanding what might be missing and how to adjust the, the quantities i often use the metaphor of cooking which is kind of funny because i am not a good cook but it's <laughs> it's really like am i missing salt am i missing pepper okay, i talk mm-hmm. about four ingredients so did you set the right goal how do you monitor progress do you get feedback like do you get the right feedback what else is going on in your life does this goal fits with the other goals that you have social support who around you supports you and once you understand these four elements and you understand the different strategies that you can use now you are preparing a dish okay and now, mm-hmm. now you are constantly adjusting uh, what's missing and, and what can be uh, added here and uh, uh, what I might be uh, uh, doing uh, too much and what I might be uh, doing too little and just, just yes, exactly, be yeah. flexible. Yeah. So I want to break down these three traps a little bit more. So the first one, you know, you went through through all of them pretty quickly, but the, the very first one you talk about is the importance of setting a goal. And the way I interpreted this is means that you are focusing on like the end point, the outcome, not focusing on the means. And this was the first thing that came up that your subtitle, the surprising lessons from the science of motivation, it was the first place I went, but wait, everybody always says it's about the journey, not the destination. And she's saying the exact opposite of that. So can you talk a little bit about that, that, that reasoning or the research behind that idea of it should be an outcome rather than the actions we take to get there? Yeah, well, you definitely need to enjoy the actions. Okay, the actions need to feel right. This is the intrinsic motivation which you are going to get to. But when you set a goal, you want to set it in terms of the, the gain and not the cost. And, and this is what I mean by you want to focus not on the price that you are going to pay, but what you are going to get out of uh, doing it. And you might get it as you are pursuing the goal. Okay, so no, it could be delayed, it could be uh, immediate. Ideally, it's immediate actually, but it's what you are getting, not what you are. Uh, paying. We know that consumers don't like to pay for, for shipping and gift wrapping. 
parking we don't like to pay for. We know that we don't like to study for prerequisite classes. So, you know, mm-hmm. students want to study for this class that they will take after they did the prerequisite class. I describe in the book a study that I ran with Franklin Shady now at UCLA back when he was a PhD student here, in which we auctioned a book to our MBA students. And some of them were bidding on the book. Another group of people were bidding on a tote bag that contained that book. What we found that surprised even us was that people were bidding $11 more on the book compared with a tote bag that contained that book. So even though it was a worse deal, if it was just a book without the tote bag, people were willing to uh, pay much more. And, and the reason is that it didn't feel right to pay for a tote bag. Either the book was in their mind, like the free thing that you get if you pay for the, the means. People really don't like to invest in no, in, in the cost. Okay? They don't like to think about the cost. They like to think about the gain. And they are just more enthusiastic when they think about what they are going to get out of it and not what they will need to do. Okay. This is, this is clicking for me now as we talk about this. So can I give you a, an example? I was getting a little hung up on this and I think I understand now. So I like to write and, you know, and I've, I'm a psychologist, so I've done a lot of professional writing, but I started creative writing many, many years ago. And of course, the goal, you know, the outcome that I desired was to publish, to have an essay public. I started out doing children's stuff. So a children's book or, or a personal essay. That was the goal. And I worked and worked and worked and worked for 10 years, and I never published a single thing. It was rejection after rejection after rejection. And I thought, this doesn't make sense because if all I'm focused on is my goal of publishing, there's no way I'm going to persevere. I would have given up writing a very long time ago if I was only focused on trying to get to that endpoint because it was eluding me. And what you're making me realize now is if I saw the steps I had to take to get to publishing as a chore, then I would give up. And then it's important to really focus on that 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 endpoint to keep me going. But in this case, writing for me is intrinsically motivating. It is the process of writing that is the most enjoyable to me. And it's more like the outcome of publishing is like a bonus, but it's the doing. So so, so am I getting that right? It sort of depends on what, if the process is intrinsically motivating, you maybe don't need to focus as much on an outcome. But if you see the steps you have to get you, if the steps you have to take to get to the goal you see as a chore, then having that, being really specific about what that desired outcome is, is really important for motivation. Do I have that right? I Absolutely. I uh, would say that if you set your goal to do something that you don't like doing for 10 years, uh, <laughs> this is awful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you set your goal to uh, uh, to write and express yourself through uh, writing, that sounds amazing. They like well, at, at least for me, because I also like to write, and it would be nice if a book comes out of it. But you know, it's uh, it's the fun of writing. Now you you're mentioning the intrinsic motivation and just enjoying the, the process itself, which is absolutely p- critical. And I I love that you talk about something which is. Uh, not only intrinsically motivating, because really most of the goals that we set are not purely intrinsically motivating. It's not walking in the park or having mm-hmm. a meal with uh, my partner. It's uh, uh, it's going to work. 
Okay, it's you know trying to publish uh, something, trying to complete a project, and like overcoming everything that uh, that stops you on on, on the way. A- and for these goals, there's a mix of intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. But it is the intrinsic motivation that often predicts engagement. So it, how much you you enjoy the process. Enjoying the process is critical. Setting the goal in terms of a desirable state uh, is uh, really helpful. So while we're talking about intrinsic motivation, are there ways to create or increase people's intrinsic motivation? So you talk about intrinsic motivation as the process itself is the the joyful piece. It feels like the the end. The means feels like the end. And it's like the things we want to do versus the things we have to do. But of course, in our life, we have many things that are have-tos. And I may have a goal of getting my laundry done every single weekend or something like that. Is there a way to build intrinsic motivation so that the process feels less like a chore? There are several ways and uh, they are important. <laughs> uh, if we figure out how to make these you know, everyday chores, like doing the laundry or doing our homework more intrinsically uh, motivating, we have a better chance. There are several ways. Okay? We can uh, add something to the activity. Okay, So you can add listening to podcasts to doing laundry Okay, or uh, uh, watching TV to exercising or uh, uh, listening to music to, to doing your work, which, by the way, I cannot and, and my husband cannot do without. Like he mm. has to listen to music while uh, working. So you, you basically bring something to the activity, and now for you, the experience of exercising means watching TV and uh, uh, running on a treadmill or whatever it is that you do. You talked in the book about doing this as a temptation bundling. So Katie Milkman's research on temptation bundling, and I interviewed Katie on the podcast as well. And the idea that, you know, I was doing this for a while where my favorite show was Billions, and I would only let myself watch it if I was on my treadmill. And it it really worked and it made me, it improved my motivation to get that workout in because I was only going to be able to watch the, <laughs> watch the yes. show while I was doing it. Yeah, it's great. So, you're definitely a participant in Katie Milkman's study. Okay, like that. <laughs> That's her strategy and, uh, and, and you know, it's a really effective strategy for increasing intrinsic motivation. At one point for you, like the activity becomes the, the combo, okay, like the temptation and the, the thing that you said to do, and, and that works. I would mention another two ways of increasing uh, intrinsic motivation. One is to choose the path to, to the, the goal, the, the way you're going to achieve the goal, such that it is intrinsically motivating. So, you know, there are uh, uh, different ways you can exercise. There are different ways you can uh, uh, that do your work, find the, the way, find the project that you are mostly excited about, find the exercise that you are mostly excited about, find the, the way to do your laundry that is uh, the most fun. Maybe it's the time of the day, uh, you know, uh, maybe you want to do it while sitting, while standing in your living room. I don't know where, like, like, make it fun. Okay, uh, And the, the third strategy, just focusing on, on the fun uh, in, in what you do. And a study that comes to my mind is a study with uh, Caitlin Woolley now at Cornell, in which we 
had people select a bag of carrots, healthy carrots, and we either told them to choose the bag that looked the healthiest or the, to choose the bag that looked the, the tastiest, okay, the most yummy bag. And, and just having these instructions in mind, people are choosing something and then eating the carrots, and they were eating more when they chose based on what seemed to be the tastiest, even though mm. it's really just, you know, it's, it's Same so thing. random, right? Like, of yeah. course, you... You choose food that looks good and yummy and healthy. Yeah. So my co-hosts and I all do a therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy that we talk about on the podcast all the time. And and a big part of ACT involves being really clear on your values. So in, in ACT, what that means is the person you want to be, what you want to stand for. It's actions and qualities of actions that like really represent the kind of human you want to be in the world. And so this kept popping in my mind as I was reading too, that, you know, that seems like a really clear way to increase intrinsic motivation. And so I was smiling as you were talking about the laundry. Now, my husband does laundry in our house. I don't even do the laundry. But if I was trying to think about like, oh, how would I really make laundry fun? Like I am blanking here. I really cannot think of a way to make laundry intrinsically motivating, except If I were to tie it to like why it matters to me, that it's not just a have to, it's like it matters to me that, you know, my children have clean clothes that they can wear to school. It matters to me that my workout clothes are clean so that I can go to my Pilates and yoga classes that really matter a lot to me. Um, I'll tell I have another example that I think I've talked about on the podcast where I've always had a hard time getting myself to exercise. And I knew the advice about like, find something you like to do. And I just, I felt like I had tried everything and there was just nothing I really liked. I was thinking about the, you talk about the importance of goals being self-selected and the danger of psychological reactance that, you know, if you're telling me I should do something, I'm going to do the exact opposite. That's sort of inner adolescent rebel thing, right? And I relate to that (laughs) so much. I wish I could say I didn't do that, but I I 100% absolutely do. So for me, exercise was really difficult. I couldn't find anything I enjoyed doing. And really, I felt like this was like society or like some other telling me that this is something I should do and I must do. And I tried to kind of tie it to my values and like, oh, I should care about my physical health and being around. And it I, it just, it, it wasn't happening. And then I I had this aha moment one day where I realized I've, you know, I have a husband who is, he doesn't have to work out and can eat whatever he wants and he looks lovely. And I had this aha moment where I thought, you know, my kids cannot grow up with two sedentary parents. Like it's just not okay. They need someone who's modeling that like moving your body is just a thing you do. And it was as soon as I tied the exercise to my role as a mom and as, and as a role model that it became intrinsically motivating for me. And that was it. It was like switch of a flip, flip of a switch. Now it didn't mean I didn't, I didn't suddenly start like loving exercise. That has actually happened more recently when I've discovered Pilates, which I do love. But it, for me, it was like really about needing to tie it to those values in terms of the kind of mom and human that I want to be as I negotiate the world. And then once it became important in my heart, then it became intrinsically motivating. Does that make sense? There is like so much uh, in your example. Uh, first, that uh, you know, asking yourself why. Okay, so you know, I, I said like the, to get to the right level of 
of abstract, inspiring goal, you need to ask a few why questions. Why am I doing it? And and your answer was uh, for my family, for you know my mm-hmm. kids, for the the role that I play as a role model. Second, there is the, the social connection and how much other people in our life support our motivation. And in this case, it's your kids supporting your motivation because you, you think that they expect you to be a role model. You think that they expect you to be someone who demonstrates the best way of, of uh, having an adult's life. And so th- their expectation or the way you perceive that expectation is influencing uh, uh, you. Uh, you mentioned reactance, so I'm not like, going to talk about this right now. Uh, but one more thing that I really uh, liked about your example is that you you admitted that exercising is never going to be something that you do because you really can't think of something better to do. And like, you know, let's be realistic. Many of the things that that we motivate ourselves to do, like they, they constantly require like some adjustment and like some extra uh, motivator here. And like we talk a lot about making things into a habit. You can make brushing your teeth into a habit. You can make buckling your seatbelt into a habit. Uh, for many of us, exercising is never quite a habit to the same extent it never quite happens by itself mm-hmm. <laughs> it's constantly trying out things finding the thing that that works for me at this point it might be pilates you know you might get bored with pilates like mm-hmm. in a year right and, and then you need to find something else to uh, to do and uh, uh, like Seeing how do I support myself how do I support my motivation is it's really a constant process that requires um, like self-analysis and, and understanding of what's well, missing. I mean, that's such a great point because I think we often make the mistake of just kind of waiting until we feel like doing something to do it. And when it's something that isn't necessarily fun or intrinsically motivating, that's like we'd be waiting forever if we waited for that to happen. But if you can look at, you know, attempting to boost your, like looking at it as something that needs to be nurtured, just like relationships need to be nurtured. You know, you have to put a little bit of work in to create the context that you're going to improve that willingness to like get out there and do things if they're not, if they're not the super fun things. (laughs) Yeah, I I agree. I I agree. And I want to give an example from a study that we uh, recently published with uh, uh, the Second City Improvisation uh, Club here in Chicago. And uh, uh, now improvisation is a is an interesting goal because for many of us, those who are not professionals, uh, if you just start improvisation, it feels awful. You're mainly embarrassed. Okay? You go there to the, to the class and they ask you to uh, do things that make you uncomfortable with your body, and you, and you just like you, you don't want to do it. And, and it will be fun, but it requires being a little bit comfortable with feeling uncomfortable for a while. And what we did was inviting people to feel uncomfortable. We told them that their goal is to feel uncomfortable. And these are beginners, okay? They just started improvisation. And your goal is to feel uncomfortable. And when we set that goal, then people were comfortable with feeling uncomfortable because that was their goal. And they were more willing to engage and get to the phase where they actually enjoyed I'm telling you about this study because often the things that we might enjoy, uh, we will not enjoy it the first time. Like if, if 
a new exercise, you might mainly feel the pain in your body then, you know, the, uh, the nice feeling that Pilates will cause you after you've done it for like 10 times. It's also allow right. yourself to like, try it a few times before you say, eh, that's not the thing for me. Yeah, and we interviewed Paul Bloom about his book, The Sweet Spot, and he talks about some of the benefits of pain, you know, not just pain for the sake of pleasure. And in ACT, when we talk about values, you know, often pain and values kind of go hand in hand, right? Like doing these interviews often makes me nervous, and yet it's really important to me, and I'm willing to feel that. And even though I'm nervous, I'm also excited, I feel more alive, and you know, so that like things that that matter are often things that can be painful or when it's new, it's uncomfortable. And it sounds like the other thing you're saying from that study is that our expectations are really important. And I remember you saying something about how like if our expectations don't match our feelings, that this can undermine motivation. And so like what does that mean for for us, like for listeners? What can we do around expectations to kind of optimize motivation? I I'm trying. I think that you are referring to when I, uh, no, it, so there are a few times where I talk about expectations. I'll mention two, but I don't know which one you're referring to. Uh, one is that we uh, we often expect more than what we can achieve. We are optimistic, mm. and this is actually good for us. Okay? This is uh, how we we challenge ourselves. This is how we uh, uh, we constantly try to move forward and do something that we haven't done before because we have like these always expectations that we can do a lot. And so I you know, I talk about the the positive impact of being slightly overly optimistic that it will cause you to do more than what you've done otherwise. My expectation that I will exercise every day this week means that I will probably exercise three or four times instead of just one or two times if I didn't expect that to happen every day. I also talk about expectations in the context of knowing that there's going to be an obstacle or knowing that there's going to be a problem and expecting that problem leads you to be more mentally prepared to when it actually happens. So, mm-hmm. you know, when we reminded people that uh, there's going to be a lot of alcohol in the party that helped them plan to to drink less and actually drink less when we reminded students that they they would be tempted by social media. They were planning to study and, and studied uh, more. Uh, when we you know, told people that the task ahead of them is difficult, they plan to finish it sooner. They were motivating themselves and they actually uh, finished it uh, sooner. Mm-hmm. So this is in the context of self-control. Like Knowing that there is a problem is often uh, the, the way to overcome that problem. The first right, step. And, and like being caught off guard makes that problem more likely to become an obstacle as opposed to problem yeah. solving around it if you expect it from the at the exactly. outset exactly yeah. I, I you know i sometimes use the metaphor of like if you are like preparing yourself to lift something like a box and if you know that this box is like full with books and it's very heavy you have a mm-hmm. much better chance to successfully lifting it up without hurting your back uh, than if you think that this is uh, a box uh, i don't know full of uh, feathers uh, yeah, feathers, exactly. <laughs> I just like, who has a box full of feathers? <laughs> <laughs> 
it's a good metaphor though that yeah that makes a lot of sense you you prepare for it differently and are more successful with completing the task if you have that expectation from that exactly yeah, yes yeah i like it so let me go back to um you you've mentioned a few times how abstract goals are better and this was another one that i went wait what? This is the opposite of what I thought. You know, we've all been taught about SMART goals and the S in SMART is for specific. So how are how are abstract goals better? And of course, you make the point that if a goal is too abstract, it's not better. But you also talk about how like putting a number on it. So walking 10,000 steps is a better goal than walk more or run the Chicago Marathon in under five hours. You know, so those seem like very specific goals. But then you're also saying but we kind of want our goals to be abstract. So how do we make sense of that? Like what's the right amount of abstract versus concrete? Yeah, so th- the smart uh, advice, the specific and smart really refers to the target, okay? So it's not uh, it's not about getting a job or writing a book or uh, exercising. It's about like how, how do I know how much, okay? And like when I think about the specific target, when I think about the target, it's better to be specific than to just say I'm going to exercise as much as I can. Okay, so they, okay. at that point, like you want to say I want to exercise between uh, four to seven times this week, and I say between four to seven because you know realistically it will be four, but I don't want to stop after I did four, so I still have like the the upper bound there. So the targets are best when they have a number, when they they are uh, specific. Goals should be more general. That goals should be an aspiration uh, in a way. And you want to make it abstract enough so that it is exciting, that it's motivating, that it's a wonderful thing that you want to have in your life, but not so abstract so that it's no longer connected to action. and. You know, and when I you, you go through like these why questions, right? so like why why do you do Pilates? And you say because you want mm-hmm. to exercise. And I say why do you want to exercise? You say because I want to be healthy. And I ask you, like why do you want to be healthy? And you, you say because I want to like, be a, a role model for my kids. And I keep asking why. And then eventually you say because I want to be happy. And then I think that you just became too abstract because what does it mean to be happy? Like how do you pursue happiness? It's it's way too mm-hmm. much there in the sky, and that is uh, not a good goal. Okay. <laughs> okay. So can- then I think maybe part of what I misunderstood is that you're differentiating, which of course you do this in the book, you're differentiating between goals and targets. So can you explain for the listeners what the difference between those two things is? I, I I would love to. I think that it's uh, some confusion in you know in the literature and also in our uh, lay language. Like we in management, we were th- often thinking about goals uh, in very mechanical terms, and and we often refer to targets. Okay, like how many. Uh, pages the typist needs to type that was like the old-fashioned targets that people were studying in the the 80s okay how uh, uh, many trees uh, you need to plant or to to cut and uh, this is kind of the, the history of the study of targets and there we we found that having a number is very helpful and i can talk why these numbers really help i in uh, uh, psychology, we often think about goals 
in much broader terms. So we, we think about your health goals and your professional goals and your familial uh, goals. And often you can add targets to, to them, but it's not, you know, you, you have financial goals. Okay? Like you want to be comfortable financially. We all want to be comfortable financially. And whether we have target or not, okay, whether we set how much money we want to earn in a year or, or save in a year, we still have the goal. Okay, it's a it's a general goal, and like the the smart, okay, like the, the all, all these like types of advice they really refer to how to set the specific target for this uh, goal. So would would an example be like for me? Would the goal have been to publish a book? But then the targets are what would what would targets be? So I'm I'm thinking of targets as sort of like smaller number based goals on the way to a target. So it might be a target might be I want to write for one hour every day, exactly, or I want to write three thousand words every week or something like that. And those targets are meant to move me toward that ultimate goal. Yes, and you nicely in your example illustrated the targets usually have. uh, Two numbers, okay? There is how much and how much time, okay? So uh-huh. <laughs> how many words by the end of the week or, you know, how many books by the end of the decade, which, by the way, is not a good uh, goal because it's too far. It's not a good target. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, you want uh, uh, the target not to take a decade, probably not even a year. So a, a daily okay. or a weekly target is, is better. And so are those targets, so so the targets themselves, that's part of what improves motivation because they're things you can check off. Like you have control over how many pages or words or time, even like I don't ultimately have control over whether I publish. There's a lot of things that go into whether that happens or not, but I do have control over these specific what did you say? You said how much and when, you know, writing this many words over this period of time, that's something I have more control over. And so even if I don't achieve that ultimate goal, are the targets part of what's meant to keep me motivated to move in that direction? Yeah. yeah. So the how much and how soon is often in your control. I mean, Mm -hmm. ideally, if you you set uh, uh, the right target for yourself, the reason that these targets work is often because you see anything uh, like the, the below this target. If you did not meet that target, it's it's a loss. Going right. above the target is like would be nice, but not really necessary. So you know, okay. if you set your your goal as walking like five thousand steps today, if you are at uh, four thousand and nine hundred, you're going to find yourself walking around your bedroom so you don't lose. <laughs> That's like I have one hundred steps. Yeah, we we <laughs> yeah we, we all did <laughs> right. <laughs> But then if you end up with uh, uh, 100 steps above, uh, you, you don't really care for it. There is a, actually a wonderful uh, study uh, that looks at the distribution of marathon times in uh, uh, the U.S. And like they looked at, at the distribution of almost 10 million marathon times. And the nice thing is that that it's not smooth, okay? There are many more people that finish a marathon just below four hours than just above four hours or just mm. below three and a half, then like a minute above three and a half or, you know, same for four and a half. So you see these spikes just before around time. And and the reason is that the target is motivating that many mm. marathon runners want to do it under four hours. 
And so at the three hour and 50 minutes, they are going to just sprint toward the end uh, so they can make it uh, exactly under four hours and not 10 seconds later. Right. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I, I did my first fitness challenge ever in my life in December, and it was in my Pilates studio. And the challenge was to do... I want to say it was 18 or 20 classes in the month. And then you got entered into a raffle to win some kind of prize. But I was going out of town on December 24th or 25th. So I only, I had 24 days to do this 18 or 20 classes. I have never done that much exercise in my life. (laughs) But, you know, having this challenge and having this target was really motivating for me. I wouldn't want to do that every month. But, you know, having that, you know, that sort of like, big payoff. And I didn't win the raffle, but it didn't even matter. You know, it was just achieving, being able to make the the, the targets that really were motivating. And, and you talk about how there are ways to identify optimal targets. Do you want to talk about some of those, like that they have to be moderately challenging and measurable? Those might be things that are helpful for our listeners to understand, like, what are the things to consider if we want to make our targets really optimally motivating? Yeah, so once we, we understand that uh, targets uh, uh, work and, you know, I, I love, like, you know, these exercise challenges that we uh, give ourselves, right? Like, do it a certain number of times a month. Like, your example really illustrated the power of just setting a number and now you want to, to meet that number for the mm-hmm. sake of uh, uh, meeting uh, that uh, uh, number. Uh, by the way, you may have heard of the, the old uh, Zygernic effect, which is the idea that when we... We have a goal that we didn't quite finish. We cannot get it off our mind. So we kind of, we, we want to complete the goal. We want to finish it so that we can put it off and, and move to something else. If, if there is something unfinished, it keeps bothering us. Like what, what well, happened? How I you, feel right? about my to-do list. Yeah. Right. Like right? why didn't you do that? Like this last thing on your to-do list. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so in terms of like the best practices of setting a, a, a target, well, we, we talked about that it's better be a, a number that, you know, that there is a specific number there. Ideally, it should be a number that is easy to measure, that you can actually uh, feel. You know, I, I give the example of a number of calories. Many people are counting their, their calories, which is a uh, not a great target because when you look at food, it doesn't scream calories. Okay, it uh, it's much easier to uh, to see uh, that it's tasty or that you know it has certain colors or it has a certain size. Uh, that calories are, are an abstract concept, which is harder to monitor compared with like number of steps, which you you can very easily uh, feel. Uh, I you know I talk about uh, uh, challenging targets or setting the targets such that you um you're not sure you are going to meet it. Okay? It will require some effort. On some days you can. On some days you you might fail to uh, to do so. The, there are really nice studies showing that when the, the target is very easy, you don't see any measures of excitement. People don't tell you that they are energized and their body doesn't suggest that they are energized. Their heart is not beating any faster. When it's impossible, same thing, okay? Like when people are working toward a target that they know they will never be able to meet, you don't see any excitement. You don't see any increase in in effort. It is when you you find like this 
sweet spot of, now if I work hard, I have a decent chance that, that you see people work harder. And, and so think about that when you set targets. Uh, and now anything I missed? I think the only other one was uh, self-set, which we actually already talked about, that these yeah. should be things that are, you know, personal and freely chosen, not something that we feel is being imposed on us by some other, and that's related to that psychological reactant. So I don't know if there's anything else you want to say about that. Yeah, no, that's uh, yeah, that, that's the one that I, this way that I was <laughs> finally did. I, I already talked about reactions, right? Like, yeah, so I, I did. You got uh, it. Yeah, you got yeah, it. Yeah, like that. So uh, let's yeah. talk a little bit about two things: is how important it is to set deadlines, and then also incentives. How we can kind of optimize incentives, but like when they can backfire. So deadlines are part of setting a target. This is the uh, how soon element. And uh, and therefore, deadlines are, are important. What we need to understand is that uh, uh, deadlines are usually set to motivate ourselves or we set them to others to motivate them. And so we, we need to have healthy relationships with our deadlines. Like the, the worry is that if we are too committed to our deadlines, uh, we might ignore better opportunities or more important tasks because uh, uh, we have some deadline, okay, because there is mm-hmm. something urgent. And I think that it's very intuitive for many people that when we start to do only what's urgent, we can often go really away from what's important for us. We can focus on the urgent instead of the, the important and so understanding that we make things urgent so that we are motivated to do them mm-hmm. is critical. Some deadlines, they are very important to meet. Many other deadlines, both deadlines, are uh, for us to stay uh, motivated. Right. Well, it, it, it makes me think of my dissertation. You know, when, when anybody's doing a dissertation, you know from the first day of graduate school you have to do a dissertation, but it's not due for like four years. And there are thousands of deadlines in between that then become more urgent. And, you know, no surprise, it took me longer to do my dissertation than it should have because I didn't have appropriate deadlines. So when I became faculty and had my own dissertation students, I started imposing deadlines on them as a way to try to motivate them to stay on track because otherwise it always got pushed to the bottom of the to-do list because there's always some other 15-page paper, you know, test you have to study for. And they were very grateful for that. You know, on the one hand, they didn't love it. But in the long run, at the end, they were like, oh, thank God. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course. And uh, uh, I'm being reminded of a study by Dan Ariely that uh, found that uh, when you invite people to set deadlines, students to set deadlines for themselves. They set the deadlines earlier than they need to. Okay, They say that they uh, will finish the paper by a certain time, which is before it's actually due to motivate themselves. So we definitely see this behavior. By the way, like being a graduate student, writing a dissertation, I, I just, I was smiling because this is such an interesting motivational challenge, right? We invite people, we tell them <laughs> there are classes, you know, there's like teaching, there are many things here that like work, okay? There's the timeline, there's deadline. And then the most important thing that you are going to do here, open-ended task. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> just motivate yourself to do it. Right. Uh, yes, yeah. it doesn't have, you know, everything that we've talked about for the past 45 minutes, it has like none of those elements to it. So no wonder, you know, people often end up in that predicament of 
having a lot to do and not very much time to get uh, it done. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Is, yeah. So what about incentives? Incentives, incentives are really uh, interesting. Incentives got a lot of attention from behavioral economics and from uh, psychological research. Incentives are usually mini goals, okay? And so, you know, you uh, mentioned the, the raffles that you will enter if you exercise. It's an incentive in the sense that you're not exercising for that, okay? It's a mini goal, okay? If you mm -hmm. exercise, then you also have a chance at, uh, at winning some, some prize. Uh, my 10-year-old is now uh, doing a 100-day club of practicing his violin every day so he can win, like, I don't know, a pencil and a sticker. Right? <laughs> <laughs> doesn't seem like a very big incentive, but it's more the accomplishment of I did it every day for 100 days. Like you exactly. have bragging rights, basically. I mean, Exactly, right? So yeah. the goal is to practice the violin, but the incentive is a, a sticker and, and a pencil. It's, it's a nice pencil, though. No, I'm just joking. It's a pencil. The, <laughs> uh, so, you know, so, so incentives work. There are a few problems with incentives. First, we uh, need to realize that incentives can backfire when there are too many incentives, when they, they, they kind of, we are not sure why we do something anymore because of the incentives and lots of examples uh, about uh, you know, that. Like we have a study in which we, we told uh, little children age uh, three to five that carrots and crackers are going to make them smarter okay, or, or stronger and they didn't want to eat these foods. Okay, So <laughs> the incentive backfired because the, the child assumed that if the reason to eat carrots is that you will learn how to count to 100, then probably carrots are not very tasty. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> in incentives can kind of distract us from the main reason that uh, we want to pursue the, the activity. Also, punishment mm. often has this feature. Like, you know, when we know that there is not police around, that uh, we might drive too fast. Okay? Why do we do this? Well, we, we kind of forgot that the reason we need to uh, drive slowly is to protect our health and the health of the other drivers on the road. Okay? We, we kind of inferred from the incentives that there was a different reason to do it. Or, mm -hmm. you know, maybe a better example is that when you turn 21, uh, you uh, often get drunk. <laughs> And, you know, you kind of assume that, well, now that there is no punishment for drinking alcohol, right. then it's a good right. activity for me. Uh, the only it, reason I'm driving the speed limit is so I don't get a ticket. So as long as there's no one around to give me a ticket, I'm going to drive as fast as I want. Oh, that's, yeah, that's yeah. really interesting. It also mm -hmm. seems like, you know, and I know the research you do isn't about like individual differences and things like that, but it does seem like it some somewhat depends on the person, the context. So for example, I'm thinking about how in general, you know, positive reinforcement tends to be a better predictor of behavior, right? Or is, is, is more effective in increasing target behaviors. And then I just, it's an N of one, but my own son you know, who's like very rebellious. I don't know. I don't know what it is about him, but he somewhat responds to those kinds of things, but honestly, not really. Like we tried to set up an app with doing some stuff to help around the house and get an allowance and give him money. Didn't work. But when I started, <laughs> okay, this is, this might be TMI of an example, but the, this boy refuses to flush the toilet and it drives my <laughs> husband and me 
insane and it's gross. And so we tried everything, couldn't change it. When I threatened to take a dollar away every single time I found the toilet unflushed, that was it. He has never forgotten to flush the toilet (laughs) since. So I, and then I couldn't really make sense of that. I was like, I feel like this goes against the, the, the rules, the thinking, like this isn't the way this is supposed to work. (laughs) Well, you know, this is why we often need to try out things, right? Yeah. Uh, Paying your kids should not work until it works. And and we have examples of of that. And, you know, incentives change behavior. Like, in my book, I I give the example of the Hanoi rat massacre. And this is when French colonists were trying to get rid of the rats in the streets of Hanoi. And so they created a bounty system by which you get one cent per dead rat. And... As a result, the residents of Hanoi started to to breed and, and you know, rats and, and just like make sure that there are enough live rats so that they can kill them and get the money. So you ask yourself, well, what, what's going on? Obviously, the incentive system failed, but right. it actually worked, right? Like it <laughs> moved people from hating rats to breeding them and, and like doing this crazy thing because there was uh, uh, money uh, involved. And so incentives can fascinating. can really influence our behavior, but we, we kind of yeah. need to do the analysis of uh, whether it's the, the right or wrong influence. I will say one more thing about incentives is that uncertain incentives usually work better. So intermittent enforcement comes to mind, excitement, uh, lotteries, also uh, bonuses versus salaries. Okay? Like not knowing whether you're going to get something is is often really like it's on your mind. It's it's motivating. And so you, it, it's perfectly fine to incentivize yourself only sometimes and not always. Yeah. And it sounds like there's that flexibility again, sort of like paying attention to what works and what doesn't work. And and what's backfiring and creating more rats rather than fewer. Well, yeah. we're, we're getting close to the end of our time, but I think one of the things I really want to, there's two more things I'd really like to ask you about. And one you talk about is how we all struggle with having multiple competing goals. And I am quite certain every person listening to this podcast relates to that. You know, we just live in a culture that feels like there is so much that we need to be doing all the time. And you talk about the importance of picking your battles. So how do we do that optimally when we have all these different goals that are competing for our time and attention and motivation? Yeah, I I would say the first thing is to decide whether we are looking for a compromise or balance or whether we we want to prioritize. Okay, So I might want to balance my career and families. I'm really looking for the right way of doing both. I might want to prioritize exercising over uh, staying in bed in the morning. And, and in that case, I'm, I'm trying to put one goal above a other. If we are looking for a compromise, then often the key is in finding activities that pursue several goals simultaneously. And now we, we refer to these activities as multifinal, basically it's you know, what I refer to is uh, feeding two birds with one stone, with one mm-hmm. scone, feeding two birds with one scone, because I don't want to kill birds with stones. <laughs> uh, that's but, much nicer. I like it. Right. This is just like, <laughs> that's be nice to the birds. And then, 
and, and this is like you now bringing lunch from home because it's healthier and cheaper and saves time. And, you know, this is a small thing. The big thing is trying to live close to work or work close to where you live so that you don't spend two hours on a, a commute and you can better serve both your career and family goals. Yeah. So like looking for these solutions where you can do several things with the same action. When it gets to prioritizing, then it's often a self-control. And one strategy that is, is quite beneficial is to think about the decisions that we make as multiplied. It's like, how should I decide this if I made a decision for every day this month, okay, or like for 10 times this year? And you know, they, often it, it's hard to recognize the conflict in one decision, in one behavior. But if you think about doing it 10 times, then mm. it is much easier to know. Oh, it, so so now I know. So like just like this morning, I know with a group of students, I uh, ran the question of would you take office uh, supply for personal use uh, for home? And uh, yeah, when you ask people, just would you do it just once? Then everybody says, oh yeah, okay. of course. Mm. Uh, and then you ask another group, would you do it ten times? And then only. Uh, one third said that they will do it. Okay. So it's wow. kind of like, well, I'm not doing yeah. it 10 times. <laughs> right, right. That's so interesting. Yeah. I've had, I sort of stumbled upon that, the compromise piece by accident. My son and I started hiking together. And it's, it has, and now every single weekend we go do something active with each other. And so it's time that I get to spend with him and we're bonding. And every time he says, Mommy, I just love our mummy and me time together. And I'm also exercising. You know, yeah. but I don't have to go to the gym or whatever I'm doing, you know, the Pilates class and spend that time away from the family. I can do both of these things at the same time and maximize our time together. I think that's, that's awesome when that, when that works out. So, so I guess that's actually a good segue to my last question, which is toward the end of your book where you talk about the importance of social support. And I think, you know, especially in Western cultures that tend to be so individualistic and we just believe we're just supposed to be able to like do everything all the things perfectly competently by ourselves. And it's a sign of weakness if we ask for help and it's killing us, you know, I mean, just like leading to burnout and, and all of that. And so I thought that might be a nice place for us to end is just to talk a little bit about the role of social support and motivation and, and goal achievement. Yeah, doing things by yourself is uh, is unrealistic and, and not very uh, human. We evolve to work in groups. So everything that we do that is important is usually with other people. And uh, when we are not working with other people, when we are not like pursuing a project at work or raising a family or doing anything that we are doing with another person in the group or a group of people, then we are pursuing our individual goals in the presence of others. So we are still influenced by others. We influence by what others care for, uh, what they endorse, uh, uh, what they value. And often like the way to motivate yourself is to to find the people who value the thing that you, you want to get yourself uh, to do. And I also think that there is a really interesting relationship between goals and our social relations. We are attracted to people who support our motivation and they are attracted to us because we support uh, their motivation. And so our, our friends are people that help us with our goals and 
when we are no longer instrumental for each other's motivation, our relationships drift apart, like people drift apart. We, we no longer uh, spend time together. Uh, understanding that allows us to, to know who are the important people in our lives, uh, to bring people to, to our lives. And in particular now that, you know, we are recovering from a long period of uh, investing less in social connection, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Of like kind of isolating ourselves in our small uh, bubbles, it, it, you see the appetite, and 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 you see that like the people are understanding how much we need others in our life in order to to get things done. Absolutely, I think that is a perfect place to end. It makes me think of this podcast actually, because of course, doing these interviews, you know, you and I are doing this together, but then. When I do my editing, it's a fairly solo activity, but we have a whole team. I have two other co-hosts. We have a few people who work behind the scenes. And, you know, that is the most, I, I think, pleasurable and re- rewarding aspect of this work is getting to meet new people and connect and, you know, kind of nerd out about science and topics yeah. and psychology. And then, you know, to have this podcast team that we get to kind of brainstorm and, and be creative around topics that we feel passionately about. I, I wrote my book with uh, my daughter. I mean, I wrote it to my daughter and she commented and sent oh. her revisions to me. And it was very much a mother-daughter project. She was starting med school. <laughs> She's about to finish by now. And wow. Yeah, it, like, you know, it was a way, a way for us to connect. Yeah, yeah and writing mm-hmm. is otherwise a very solitary kind of activity. So to find a way to yeah. make it less solitary is more motivating. Yeah, that's so mm-hmm. great. Well, Ayala, thank you so much for being here. This is just fascinating. As a reminder to our listeners, the book is called Get It Done, Surprising Lessons from the Science of Motivation. There's so much more. I mean, I've got an entire page worth of of other questions I wanted to, to ask you about. We just ran out of time. So there's a lot of really just juicy, interesting stuff in here. So thank you so much for taking the time to to share it with us. Thank you, Jill. Uh, it's really Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to meet you. And uh, hopefully people will be interested in uh, in the book and in the work yeah, and learn more. Absolutely. Well, where else can they find you if they want to learn more? Do you have a website? Are you on social media? Yeah, I am everywhere, I think. Ayelatfishback.com <laughs> <laughs> uh, is my website. And I have a, a one-hour mini course on motivation uh, there. And no, uh, all, all social media, like uh, I, I'm, I'm finding my way there. So just excellent. And we will post, put, we'll post all of those links in our show, show notes and you can find Ayala there. Thank you oh, so wow. much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or purchase POTC swag at our merch store by going to offtheclockpsych.com slash merch. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.